Hi, I'm Diana Penunchal, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. When we discuss access to information, that includes information about our bodies and our health. Libraries have long been a lifeline to patrons looking to connect with healthcare resources, dispel misinformation, and find answers discreetly, even when our institutions are under attack. So, let's talk about it. This episode, we're discussing sexual and reproductive health information. First, ALA Editions Senior Editor Jamie Santoro chats with Barbara Alvarez, Library and Information Science Instructor and author of The Library's Guide to Sexual and Reproductive Health Information. Alvarez discusses a recent nationwide survey she conducted on how libraries provide such information and offers advice on what librarians can do to improve their services. Then I speak with Beth Myers, Director of Special Collections at Women's College, Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, which houses the Sophia Smith Collection of Women's History. We discuss the value of curating a women's history collection that prioritizes sexual and reproductive health and how libraries can form a collection of their own. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. Have you heard? Booklist Reader, Booklist's new book browsing guide offering reading recommendations to patrons of all ages, is now available in print. Go to booklistonline.com to find out how you can order print copies for distribution at your library. Already subscribed? Booklist subscribers can share issues digitally for free. Visit Booklist's website for more details. How can libraries better curate and provide sexual and reproductive health information for their patrons? ALA Editions Senior Editor Jamie Santoro chats with author and library and information science instructor Barbara Alvarez, who shares actionable steps for information professionals. In 2022, you conducted a nationwide survey investigating sexual and reproductive health information services in public libraries. What were some of your most notable findings? Well, it was a really interesting research study to conduct. And as far as I know, it's the first one that's been conducted about sexual and reproductive health information in public libraries. So a couple key findings from it. The main one is that librarians are very supportive, overall very supportive of intellectual freedom and sexual and reproductive health information. But there's a lot of tension in providing that information. There's fear about what the community might say, or whether or not the library board or administration would be supportive of it. So that really revealed to me that sexual and reproductive health information is so politicized. It also showed me that a lot of libraries operate in building up their collections or their programs and services based on what patrons ask them at the reference desk. And that makes sense. We want to provide services and collections that reflect the needs of our communities. But what this study really revealed to me was that not everybody asks for information that they need. They might not be asking for sexual and reproductive health information because of stigma or fear. So just because people aren't necessarily asking for information doesn't doesn't mean that they don't need it or want it. So it's important for library professionals to not just build up collections and programs and services based on what people are explicitly asking for, but also considering what's going on on a larger scale and also within our own communities and states. And now here we are in 2023. Do you think we're in the same place we were when you did your survey? What might have changed or stayed the same? 
This survey was conducted two months before Roe was repealed, and now there are about 15 states in the country where abortion is completely illegal or highly restricted. And so I would imagine, given the responses that I received about fear of community backlash or criticism from administration or uh, from patrons, I would imagine that that's very heightened. I actually interviewed three Wisconsin librarians for an article on The Progressive in November of 2022. And those interviews showed me just how nerve wracking it can be to try and provide sexual and reproductive health information. In Wisconsin, abortion is no longer legal. And so librarians definitely felt the weight of that. And I would imagine if I were to conduct the survey again, that others would agree with those statements. So given the heightened political nature of this and the restrictions in some states, what are some of the first steps that you recommend a library do to provide or improve their sexual reproductive health services? Well, I think if I've learned anything from the conversations that I've had, the surveys that I've been conducting with library professionals, it's that patrons very rarely are going to ask outright for sexual and reproductive health information. We need to be cognizant that that doesn't mean that they don't need it or that they don't want it. And I'm actually conducting a community-based survey right now, asking people about how they feel about the library and just looking at some of the preliminary findings from there, people have talked about um, being afraid that the library wouldn't have that information or that they would be judged or criticized. And so I think it's really important for us to show that we are a no judgment space, that we do provide all types of information, including sexual and reproductive health information. And ways that we can do that are... Um, First of all, by offering a variety of ways that somebody might ask those questions, not just at the reference desk, but chat or email options. Also, I think it's really important for us that we start developing programs, our collections, and our resource guides and book displays about sexual and reproductive health topics. We could create a resource guide that has links to databases, websites, and books on certain topics. We could have programs on specific topics. When I worked in a public library in Milwaukee, we had programs about uh, breast health and ovarian health and also about how to speak to your children about uh, sexual health. So those were just programs that we weaved into our regular lineup. And also, I think it can be helpful to teach classes or create resource guides on how people can use databases so that people can learn to self-navigate the library collection and either do this on library computers or in their own home. But essentially, I think that we need to do a twofold of developing our collections, making people aware that we have these services, perhaps starting to build partnerships, and also creating opportunities to educate people on how they can be self-learners. What sort of partnerships might a library consider? My biggest advice for building up partnerships is to make sure that the partnerships you are forming are evidence-based. Community partnerships are really, really helpful for programs, for education, for resource sharing. I have built up community partnerships to do just that on a variety of health issues beyond sexual and reproductive health. When I worked at a library where we were dementia-friendly, we worked very closely with local community organizations to 
bring information and resources and education about dementia for people with dementia as well as their caregivers. I don't see providing sexual and reproductive health information as that different, just like any other type of community partnership that you would build for uh, a health-related issue or any type of community concern, I think sexual and reproductive health goes along right with that. However, there is the added caveat that we need to make sure that those partnerships are evidence-based because there are anti-abortion centers that are throughout the country. They outpace legitimate healthcare centers in some states by five to one. And they spread disinformation. They do not spread accurate information about sexual and reproductive health. And often they don't have any certified medical providers on staff. And so that's really important is considering if your community has an anti-abortion center, just because they might say we're a reproductive health center by name, they might consider themselves to be, but in practice, they aren't in the sense that that information is, is not factual and has been discredited by the American Medical Association. So being very cognizant of who you're forming the partnerships with. And then how you develop that partnership is really up to your library. You can start small by simply sharing pamphlets and brochures um, and collaborating on resource guides, or you could also integrate their programs into your regular lineup. Just like I gave examples about how I had done that in the past, you could do that as well and make it a regular part of your rotation. I think another interesting area that libraries might consider with partnerships is the role of social workers. I know that many libraries have considered how social workers can be a part of public library infrastructure as you know, either dedicated staff or as being a, a resource for the community and directing people to resources. And a recent publication by my colleagues with the University of Wisconsin's Collaborative for Reproductive Equity was published in the journal Social Work. And it specifically talked about how social workers can help meet the specific needs of people, including abortion-related information and how social workers should be trained on helping people find that information. So if your library has any type of social work model or you know some type of social justice model, you might want to consider how weaving in reproductive health information could be part of that. So moving back to the actual patron in the library, how would a librarian make those patrons feel at ease? How would they protect their privacy? What do suggest for those one-on-one -on -one interactions with library patrons? Well, as I mentioned, some preliminary findings from a community-based study that I'm doing is it shows that people like the library, they trust the library, but they aren't fully aware of how a library may protect their privacy. They might be afraid to ask for certain information because they are concerned that that information is going to get out there. This could be especially true if it's a small community where perhaps you see your librarian at the grocery store later. And so somebody might be afraid that that um, information isn't going to remain confidential. And so First of all, I think as librarians, we need to really make sure that we are adhering to patron privacy and confidentiality as interpreted by the Library Bill of Rights. Privacy means that we allow for open inquiry and without a patron's interest being examined as to why they're asking for this information or what they intend to do with it. And so we can build up that trust through active listening and through comprehensive reference interviews, um, reminding people 
that we don't save their search history or the books that they check out. And then that relates to their confidentiality. I, I think it's also really an opportunity for us as librarians to look at any contracts that we have with vendors or consider what information that we are storing and where and examining what um, what is really necessary and what's not. So there's some conversations that need to be had within a library organization. But beyond that, we can let our patrons know that we are organizations that uphold intellectual freedom and that we do uh, that we don't track their search histories or the books that they check out, and that we also don't reveal that information. And what sort of special advice might you have for those library workers living in states where there's pressure to restrict the sharing of reproductive health information? Well, this is a very real concern. And as librarians and humans, this is really, it's it's scary because um, this is a direct attack on intellectual freedom on the First Amendment. Here's just a couple of examples that we're seeing. The University of Idaho staff were told that they can't say that condoms prevent pregnancy. They can only say that condoms prevent STDs. In Texas, there is a bill that would block sites that provide abortion information. And Idaho actually just recently became one of the first states to pass a bill as of this conversation, it's awaiting signature by the governor, that would make it a crime to take minors out of the state to seek abortion care, and that people could be prosecuted if they were to, if they uh, were to find out that they were helping somebody. Now, that, that's an information access issue, issue because that can relate to people's search histories and text conversations and things like that. So without a doubt, it is a really scary time for information access and reproductive health. And that's in direct contrast to uh, what the United Nations says, which is that information access is a human right. It's against, you know, our, our, the First Amendment. It's certainly against Library Bill of Rights. And also World Health Organization specifically says that sexual and reproductive health information helps to advance gender equality and improve public health. So there's a couple things that library professionals can do. Um, first of all, we need to, of course, operate in the situation that we're currently in. I, I would never call for anyone to put themselves or their library in danger. So absolutely a consult with attorneys about what you can and cannot share what's within your scope at the library. Um, and then, of course, advocating as information professionals, advocating for intellectual freedom and information access, and that sexual and reproductive health information is not a political issue. Yes, it's been politicized, but this is healthcare information. And that's not just me saying this. This is backed up by medical experts and human rights organizations and and, you know, intellectual freedom and First Amendment. So, yes, we need to operate in the situation that we're currently in while also advocating against these bans. And you've often made the connection here in this conversation and in some of your writing about the connection between sexual and reproductive health in libraries and book bans. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, there seems to be a parallel with it. Um, I wrote an article for the Progressive Magazine where I had interviewed three librarians in Wisconsin about what it's like to provide sexual and reproductive health information at the time that we're seeing so many book bans. One librarian specifically said, with all the book bans that are coming, I'm afraid that I might be next. And these book bans are um, attacking 
a lot of diverse topics and diverse authors and diverse voices, and that includes sexual and reproductive health information. LGBTQ voices are being banned, um, trans books for trans folks, as well as about trans healthcare is under attack, not just in book bans, but in legislation. And so sexual reproductive health information is part of the topics that are currently being banned right now or being, or, or being attacked. And so I think it's really important for us to make sure that our collection development policies are very clear, that we have clear reconsideration policies that follow best practices as outlined by the American Library Association, and that we fully explain how diverse books build up stronger collections and build up stronger communities, and that this includes sexual and reproductive health information. This is a public health issue as well as a social justice issue. And so we need to explain that. Unlike other collection development and readers advisory tools and publications, subscriptions to Booklist and Booklist Reader help drive the mission of ALA. Not only are you receiving the most trustworthy and reliable content in the industry, but your support also helps ALA advocate on behalf of libraries and assist those facing an unprecedented number of book challenges. Subscribe now at booklistonline.com. Smith College, located in Northampton, Massachusetts, is a women's college home to the Sophia Smith Collection of Women's History. I speak with Beth Myers, Director of Special Collections at Smith, on how the collection spans decades of history of women's health and how students are turning to it as a source for accurate information and inspiration for projects of their own. First, tell us a little bit about the collection and how it came to be. Yes, um, I love this story. So um, Smith College Special Collections actually is an umbrella that holds three different repositories. Uh, the one we'll focus on today is the Sophia Smith Collection of Women's History, which was founded in 1942. Um, I love <laughs> that we are uh, the oldest repository of women's history in the U.S., um, I think that creating an archive and valuing women's history as early as 1942 says a lot about Smith. You know, I think it in many ways was a political act. It was kind of radical for its time. You know, most of the records being documented, of course, at that time were mostly white men and in positions of some doubt, power or authority. Um, and many of their wives and sisters, relatives, friends um, who are female were being disregarded. And so Smith said, you know, we, we see the value in this and um, started to amass a collection, slow uh, and steady, but uh, certainly over time. What are some of the most interesting artifacts uh, or aspects of the collection relating to sexual and reproductive health information, reproductive justice, and what's their significance? Yeah, I see things come in and I'm new, I'm newly smitten with things or I'm newly fascinated by things. Um, we just had a donor, we don't normally collect objects, but we had a donor send us um, these custom tie pins that were made and it was of a little birth control pill or a tie pin that had, um, that was the word vasectomy in a circle. And like these things are very bespoke and they're not, they don't have tremendous research value, but it tells a story about how people were socializing birth control and socializing this idea of family planning and the ways in which it could show up on the body without being a sign or something more explicit. And I, I think our strength is in that intersectionality and the way that 
that we have so many collections across so many different groups and individuals over so many decades that it's really this complex ecosystem or like a spider web. So if you pluck one string of it, that you can you can start tracing it out um, through both expected and somewhat unexpected places. So for example, we have Margaret Sanger's papers, who's the founder as ostensibly the founder of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. We have the Planned Parenthood Federation of America records. We have her um, the offshoot, the Alan Guttmacher Institute records, and we have Alexander Sanger, her grandson's records. And like, it just, it becomes this, this sort of cluster effect where you can see the overlap and you can see different women's organizations and individuals working in different parts of the country at different times, all around the same issues. Another example would be the way in which faith um, and choice are, you know, I think, I think the stigma is that if you're a person of faith, you're not necessarily a person for choice. Um, And we have a lot of records that Catholics for Choice is a great example of how you have people who are who I very clearly and uh, intentionally identify as Catholic, but also as pro-choice and pro-family planning, documenting particularly non-white women's experiences with this. So wanting to look at like the sister song, um, sister song women of color, reproductive justice records, and Loretta Ross, who's a recent MacArthur fellow. Is the, one of the founders of that. So we have her papers, we have Sister Song's papers, but it's also the Black Women's Health Imperative. Like again, it's just it's just these clusters, and so you can you can rather than the one thing, it's like dipping into a pool, and suddenly you're like, oh, and this person knows that person, and that oh, I see how they made these connections, and uh, they jointly lobbied. Um, I think in all of this is a lesson on how to get things done. And also how it's messy and difficult, and sometimes it doesn't work, but it is inspiring <laughs> nonetheless. Even in even in now that we're in a post row environment, we're definitely still seeing um, a lot of attention and care and interest in the collections. Over the past six months, we've had three thousand four hundred and seventy seven finding aid searches. So that's somebody going into our finding aids, searching for abortion, reproductive justice, and health which hit 61 collections in which they were able to do research. So that is a spike up. It's not like a dramatic, but it is a spike upward. And um, I think is probably filing at least surprising considering the timing, but um, it's good. It's good. People are coming back to the record and um, looking for those stories. Is the collection open to the public or just students? And also how have students and the public used this collection? Yes, we are completely open to the public. We are inside of the Smith College library system, but we are completely public. Um, We're enthusiastically public. We try to lower as many of those barriers as we can to access. We receive uh, around 2,000 distance reference requests per year. So even if you can't get to Northampton, Massachusetts, which is not necessarily the easiest place to get to, um, then we have a really robust um, public services staff. Uh, But we do host about 1,300 people a year in person in our reading room, so it's a lot. Um, We do see a lot of Smith students come through. About one in five Smith students will come through. But we also are part of the Five College Consortium. And then we're open, again, to the public. And so, you know, what gets produced from this research is you know, it's part of why I love my job so much is it's so incredibly varied. Like you, you just see all manner of new knowledge and understanding and the way it's expressed from traditional papers to 
podcast, multimedia exhibitions, traditional exhibitions, scholarly papers and books, of course, but we've also seen archival collections um, inspire poetry and studio art, historical fiction and newspaper um, editorials. So we, we do see a fair number of journalists come through, which is which is pretty fun. And it feels very up to date. It feels it, it reflects what I think about archives. What I believe about archives is that where it's living, breathing, active, happening today. It's not just the holding of what's happened in the past. So, yeah, it's it's busy, <laughs> it's, which is great. It's a good it's the best problem to have. Off the top of your head, can you think of any specific projects that stood out to you? Well, increasingly, we're seeing students um, focus in on podcasts. So, um, you know, really, there's a lot of interest in the oral histories that we have. We're seeing students, you know, really adapt and reuse the content in interesting ways um, that aren't always completely expected. Um, so that's been fun. A lot of emphasis on the audiovisual and um, the creation of zines and chat books as well, seeing, seeing that happen um, and then seeing them getting distributed out, which is, which is so fun because again, it sort of repositions archival content in a, in a really active contemporary, almost cool way. Uh, dare, I dare I say cool, well, I will, I'll say it. Can you tell me what's the value of housing such a collection and continuing to contribute to it, especially after all of this time, and especially in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade? Without going into too much backstory, um, the Sophia Smith collection um, really did grow from a focus on uh, white middle-class women, um, particularly those involved in abolition and suffrage um, and early progressive movements. Um, around labor and other issues affecting women, health and safety. It has in the 20th century, mid 20th century and on uh, expanded and the number of collections focused around women's, what I, what I say, women's health, um, reproductive justice and well-being because it's, you know, it's holistic. And so if we, if we step into the st sort of step back from row, as hard as that is to do, you know, if we step back from it, the collections focus on a wide variety of topics about related to women's bodies and experiences. So domestic violence, rape, self-defense, development, testing, and access to birth control, hormones and hormonal treatments, menopause, birth, abortion, family planning, sexual identity and experiences, labor, midwifery, and so on and so forth. And this is the great thing about these collections is how you know, we, we can talk about Roe, we could talk about the pre-Roe and what it was like to document women's experiences, and we could talk about what it's been since, but there's so much intersection in, in these topics, and I think that's their inherent power, and what I really appreciate about research being done now in a post-Roe environment is that people are sort of coming back to this topic and really seeing those intersections, it's very difficult to talk about access to birth control or access to um, safe and healthy abortions without talking about geography and religion and race and class. And so um, I think that that's our, our particular strength is that intersectionality. It's important to really recognize, and I think the the way in which the collections, Fly Smith collections matured, and the way we're still collecting right now is to put in the forefront that not every woman's experience is going to be the same, has historically been the same. 
um, whether or not someone could get access to reproductive medical care in any form had a lot to do with things that that individual had little control over. What we're striving for is to continue to document those layers and those different identities and different women, um, because it isn't just a woman's experience, right? It's multiple perspectives and experiences happening at different times. In this particular post-Roe environment, and even before, really since Roe passed um, and building into Roe, we've had so much social cultural argument and tension over who controls this narrative about women's bodies. And, you know, there's information, disinformation, there's claims that are, you know, range from sort of specious to completely ridiculously incorrect. Um, And people with very specific political and social agendas that they're trying to get accomplished around women's bodies. And so, you know, the power of archives, I think, and of the Sophia Smith collection in particular, is that because there's no intermediary, nobody's spinning, right? It's the evidence of the experience. So we can hew very close to that evidence, to that truth. And that because there's not an agenda at play other than documenting what was seen, felt, known, uh, or transpired, it's harder for the narrative to get hijacked and controlled by others. So that's true for all archives, but I think it's especially timely right now. How can a library start their own collection of women's history or maybe even scale it down to some programming or thematic displays, things like that? It can be daunting. Um, I mean, I I wasn't here in 1942. I you know there have been a lot of people who have participated in the growth of this collection and to whom I owe, I think we all owe profound debt uh, for having that foresight and determination. And if I was starting from scratch, it would, it might feel overwhelming. Like, how do we, how do we even get started? And my initial thought is start somewhere, right? Start to scale, Um, find out who's documenting and how women are being documented in the communities that you're a part of. Are there existing women's archives? Depending on how you define them, there are about 50 specifically women's collections around the country. And so What's around you? Who else is collecting? Learning about what's already happening helps set up like, well, what can we do? What's the absence we could fill? Like, how can we contribute? Um, I think another way all libraries can um, participate in finding the women is, you know, women are everywhere, right? (laughs) That's the good news. Women are everywhere. It's just maybe not well described. Taking a hard look at um, the subject descriptions and um, the way in which collections, even standard book collections are organized and how they're described can often reveal so many more creators, women as creators of content, but also producers of the books, illustrators, like the women are there. It's just not necessarily named. So let's name them. And I think always sticking to scale, what's manageable, maybe doing a table display, done. Anytime you do a, not just Women's History Month, anytime you do a display, look at it and say, uh, who's here? What authors are here? Who, what, who are we talking about here? Is this all one type of person? Are we really, are we being critical about um, who's being represented? So, you know, when I started in Women's Archives, which has been a minute, it was, you know, not all white men. We're here to document women. I, at this point, I think it's not all white men, not all white women. Like it's not either, or it's like, it's a big tent. Let's bring people into it. So yeah, start to scale, look around, see what people are doing, double check those subject listings, and um, that will do a lot. 
Did you know our friends at Booklist have tons of free webinars featuring forthcoming titles from your favorite publishers, trends in librarianship, author panels, and more? From collection development to reader's advisory to professional development, Booklist webinars are a great resource for any library worker. Go to booklistonline.com to sign up for upcoming events or visit their YouTube channel to watch previous recordings. Next episode, we're getting down to business, small business, and how libraries are helping them flourish. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover? Let us know. Thanks for listening.